The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Chip Lake. Uh, He is a former congressional chief of staff and political strategist. Uh, He is currently with the consulting firm Glendale Strategies and also Twin Oaks Connect. Welcome to the show, Chip. Chip. Jordan, thank you so much for having me. You've had a long history on Capitol Hill. Just briefly tell us uh, who you were uh, chief of staff for and a little bit about your experience. Yeah, no problem. I sure will. I was uh, chief of staff for a Republican member from Georgia, a gentleman by the name of Lynn Westmoreland, who was elected to Congress. Uh, He was sworn in in January of 2005, and he just uh, retired this last session, so he served uh, six terms, I believe it was, six two-year terms, and um, and uh, he is now retired after 12 years in Washington, D.C., and then uh, I left, though I didn't stay with Congressman Westmoreland the entire time, Jordan, I ended up leaving uh, in, believe it was 2013, April or May of 2013, and um, I hung up my own shingle and uh, have been doing uh, political consulting, uh, some PR, public affairs work, um, uh, business strategy advice, all that fun stuff. And um, I've been able to watch the past election cycle as a spectator. So that was certainly um, uh, that was certainly very interesting to uh, to watch develop. So we've just had a major transition of power. Uh, President Trump became sworn in last Friday. So kind of first of all, just kind of tell us politically, how is it that he won when all the people in the media and the polls thought he had no chance whatsoever. What was in the population that all the traditional media and pollsters did not see? Jordan, it's a great question, and I'm going to try to answer that. Uh, I could talk for hours on that, but I know we're, we're limited on time. You know, ultimately, it was a choice between, uh, like most, most general elections are for president, between the Republican nominee and the Democratic nominee. And, you know, in this country... We elect our presidents based upon uh, the Electoral College, and so um, the polls uh, at the end of that election uh, had Hillary Clinton with a two to two and a half, uh, excuse me, with a four-point lead, and she ended up winning the popular vote by two and a half points, but we don't elect our presidents there. So the short answer is he got the votes in the states where he needed the votes, and, um, and that was largely states that Republicans haven't won in the last six election cycles, the Rust Belt states, uh, states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, you know, states that we haven't traditionally done well in. He was able to win votes in those states, carry the traditional Republican states, and lo and behold, he's president today. But I'm just saying, what was the message that he was telling people that got through that allowed him to win in those Rust Belt states that uh, previous Republicans, as you say, the last six have not been able to 
that yeah, right. good, good question. I mean, the overall thematic of his campaign that seemed to resonate across the country was, you know, uh, uh, I want to make America great again. You know, we don't win as much as we used to. We lose a lot, and I want to change that. Specifically with the Rust Belt states, I think the the, the issue was trade. I mean, trade policies uh, for Republicans uh, traditionally have always been for trade, uh, for free trade, and, and Democrats have been much more skeptical and much more bullish on trade. You know, Trump kind of changed the dynamic this year and said, uh, you know, we need to renegotiate these trade policies so that they're going to work for this country. Now, what's going to be interesting to see, Jordan, is how that works out, because um, if we do limit trade and we do put restrictions on trade, and, and if he is successful at imposing tariffs, then people in this country are going to be paying more for goods and services. So I think we're about to find out. Do you want to pay more for goods and services to have, you know, uh, more manufacturing in this country? Or do you want to pay uh, the lowest price for goods and services? So I, I think over the next year or two, we're about to we're going to get uh, a pretty good peek on what the American people, you know, what, what they think about that, because they say they want uh, they say they don't want free trade. But but I can tell you, um, they're they're going to they're not going to want prices to go up for the goods and services that they're purchasing. How do you think foreign countries, particularly China, Japan, and Mexico, which he targeted the most, will respond? Do you think they'll give in and we'll have uh, better trade agreements, or, or is there going to be trade wars? Um, you know, it's to be determined, uh, Jordan. I mean, if, if you're a foreign country right now and, you know, you, you see how this president, um, I'm used to saying president-elect, although he just got sworn in on Friday, so it's going to take a little time to transition from that. When, when you see how he likes to negotiate over Twitter, you know, y you have to take this president seriously, but not literally. Um, and and that's going to be hard for them to do. I mean, look, we don't know what this is going to look like because he doesn't know what it's going to look like. So if we don't know what it's going to look like, and the president doesn't know what it's going to look like. It's impossible to think that that um, that uh, that foreign countries will have a better idea on how this is going to go either. So I think we'll have a better idea when we're six, eight months into this administration, you know. But you know, he he showed everybody during the election whether you like him or not, you know, expect the unexpected. And this is not a man that comes to office with a defining ideological set of principles. He is very much a populist with no defining ideology. And that means that um, he could change his mind at any time. And, um, and, and it means there, there could be a lot of fluctuation in policy. And, um, and it, he's going to keep everybody on his toes, that's for sure. So you were on Capitol Hill uh, dealing, I guess, mostly with Obama during your time, well, I guess some, somewhat of Bush. Correct. How is this going to be different from Capitol Hill's point of view? They have a very broad agenda, Republicans particularly, what they want to put across. Uh, is Trump going to cooperate with them? Is it going to surprise them? What is, going to, what is the view from Capitol Hill towards yeah, President I think it's going to be a little bit of both. I think he's going to cooperate with them when he can. I think he's going to surprise them when they don't, uh, when they don't uh, fully embrace what it is that he wants them to fully embrace. I mean, look. The vice president of the United States, um, um, you know, n normally doesn't have any set of responsibilities other than to break ties in the United States Senate and, and become president in, in, in the event, in the unlikely event that the president is unable to carry out his or her duties as president. This vice president, Mike Pence, will be the most 
important and influential vice president in American history, not only because he um, he spent time in Congress as a member of Congress from Indiana before he was governor, but it, as somebody explained to me in the transition, he translate he translates Congress to the president, and he also translate the translates the president to Congress, and so. Um, usually the vice president has an office on the Senate side that's a ceremonial office that they normally don't use very much. This vice president, Mike Pence, is also going to have an office on the House side of the Capitol. And so, um, you know, what Donald Trump does not know about Washington and Congress, he'll learn very, very quickly. And then, you know, what, what that looks like by the time we get to August recess is anybody's guess. But uh, but I'm looking forward to watching it, Jordan. It's going to be a heck of a lot of fun to to watch. And, uh, you know, nobody really knows what's going to happen right now, which makes it so fascinating. And how are the Democrats going to respond to this? I think there's 10 Democratic senators coming up in the 2018 election uh, that uh, are in red states that Trump won. Are they going to change because they're worried about losing their reelection bids? Yeah, they always do. I mean, you know, senators serve six-year terms, as you know, and if you, if you, so there's only 33 up uh, every cycle. One, there's one cycle where there's 34 to get to 100, but, you know, they, they, they traditionally always behave differently when they're in cycle than the other four years, and I would expect nothing different from, uh, from this crop of senators who are up for re-election. Um, I will tell you the American people sent a strong message, and that's that they don't like the way Washington does business, and they don't like business as usual. Um, and so, you know, the funny thing about elections is the voters always get their way, and uh, they did in this respect. And so, if you're a if you're a Republican or a Democrat that's facing re-election, um, you you better pay very very close attention, more than you ever have before on your district and your state because voters feel like they are empowered. They feel like they are being listened to. And we'll see if the expectations can be met. That's a different story. But, you know, right now they feel like they're on their way to taking back their government and they don't like incumbents right now. So if I'm in cycle as a senator, I'm paying very close attention to the pulse of the American people. Let's go to some specific issues. The first, probably the biggest one, that they're going to do is Obamacare from the beginning. They're clearly going to repeal it quite quickly, but the question is, what are they going to replace yeah. it with? Is there a plan? I mean, Trump says he's going to do it almost simultaneously. I mean, I don't think I know of a plan that's ready to go as soon as they repeal it. What, what's right. going to happen with the, the, the new Obamacare, the Trump care, I guess they're going to call it? Well, Jordan, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, there is a plan. The problem is there are lots of plans, plural. And so, you know, candidly, Republicans never thought they would be in this position. I mean, I, I don't think anybody, and they'd be lying to you if they told you any differently, I don't think anybody thought, any Republican member of Congress thought that as we sit here on the Monday after the new president was sworn in, that Republicans would control both sides of the House, would control the White House, and they would be put in a position of having to follow through on a promise that they've made to their base for, for years now. And so it's going to take a while to get to consensus. I can tell you right now from a 30,000 foot level, the divide between um, congressional Republicans is they're, they're, they know they have to repeal it. The question is, do we replace it simultaneously? There are some that believe we need a lot of time 
And there are others that believe that even though it's going to take some time on the implementation side, they should pass the framework on the same day. It's going to take a while to get to consensus on that. And, um, and you know, I, I don't know exactly what they end up doing. I, I think what they probably do, Jordan, is do a little bit of both. And what I mean by that is they repeal Obamacare and then they pass a resolution along with repeal that says, you know, w- we will have a replacement that follows these market guidelines, you know, that, that makes healthcare. Um, you know, more access to healthcare, not universal coverage, but more access. But, um, you know, this is not where we thought we would be. And so uh, it is going to take some time. Anything big does. And then the implementation part, much like Obamacare, is likely to take at a minimum two years, probably longer than that. Now, you worked with Tom Price directly, right? Who's the... I did. Who's going to be head of Health and Human Services. What's your evaluation of him and his ability to, to do the replacement for Obamacare? You, you know, Jordan, there he is the best person at the right time. I, I, I did Tom Price's first race when he won at the same time that my, my former boss, Lynn Westmoreland, did. He got elected in 2004, got sworn in in 2005. Everything that Tom Price has done in his life, everything he's done as a doctor, Everything he's done as a businessman, he started Resurgence Orthopedics, which is one of the largest orthopedic practices in the country today. And then everything he's done in in elected life, whether it be as a state senator or as a member of Congress, everything has set him up and prepared him for what he's about to enter. The guy doesn't sleep. He sleeps maybe three or four hours a night. He has a desk, a standing desk. He is a doctor in a lawyer's profession and every day he has a chip on his shoulder wanting to make sure that all the lawyers in the body understand that he is just as smart, if not smarter than they are. And so, look, Tom has an almost impossible task. But I tell you, if anybody is capable and qualified to navigate that process, it's Tom Price. And, and I look forward to watching him do that. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Chip Lake. Uh, he is the consulting firm Glendale Strategies and also Twin Oaks Connect. Uh, you can find out more about him at his website, twinoaksconnect.com. We'll be back after this. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Chip Lake. Uh, He is a former congressional chief of staff. He is with the consulting firm Glendale Strategies and also Twin Oaks Connect. You can find out more about him at his website, twinoaksconnect.com. Welcome back to the show, Chip. Thanks, Jordan. I appreciate you having me. So one big difference between this president and past president is their use of social media, and particularly Twitter. Uh, How is that going to change the political dynamic with Capitol Hill when President Trump comes out with tweets that never never knows what to expect every day? Jordan, it's going to turn Capitol Hill and Washington upside down. There's no other way to sugarcoat it, and there's no other way to downplay it. I mean, you know, this president has shown um, as a candidate and then as president-elect that the way he is going to communicate with the American people is directly. Now, in the past, other presidents have had to communicate through earned media, uh, through traditional sources of media, but... um, this president is very active with his Twitter account. Now that he's president, we'll see if it um, uh, we'll, we'll see if uh, the frequency of his tweets decrease. But if I had to bet on it, I would say they would not. Um, this president has already shown uh, that he has a more adversarial relationship with the traditional press than any other president in American history, and so he's going to take his message directly to the people, whether it be YouTube or whether it be Twitter. And, you know, how that develops, we'll have to wait and see. But I can assure you that it will be it will be different than anything we have ever seen before. And candidly, you know, while I am um, a little concerned as well about the impact now of what those tweets will be now that he's president, you know, candidly, I I think if it's managed in the right way and if he uses it in the right way, this is a reflection on where we are as a country from a technology perspective on how we communicate. And, you know, look, things have changed certainly over the last 10 years faster than they ever have in any 10-year period. So uh, I'm actually looking forward to that aspect of his presidency because uh, I, I don't think it's a problem at all. Uh, if he bypasses the uh, traditional media, I might want him to be um, maybe have a little bit better relationship with traditional media because you're still going to need those sources and they're still going to play a role. But it'll uh, um, it'll be something like we've never seen. And my guess is subsequent presidents, uh, the presidents we have after this one will will likely engage in that type of communication as well. Probably not as frequent um, and, and probably not as charged in their rhetoric, but I think you'll see that moving forward. One of the things he does is call out individual companies uh, like Boeing and Lockheed and uh, drug companies and so on, and also individuals uh, when they criticize him, like when John Lewis said he was illegitimate, things like that. 
Right. Is that going to kind of poison the atmosphere, or are people just going to get used to it, and that's going to the way it's going to be? Well, I think look when you when when you're an elected official, you have every elected official has political capital. It's not something that shows up on a balance sheet. Um, it it is it is capital that you have and goodwill that you have that you have to spend in order to get things done from a public policy perspective. Now, any elected official will tell you, Jordan, the most political capital you ever have is from the time you get elected until the time you're sworn in. So I've never seen anybody spend more political capital than this president did before he got sworn in. And so now that he's president and now that he's sworn in, he's going to be spending that capital and he's going to have to be making a decision on, you know, on where to spend that capital. And look, it could be that if he continues to call these companies out, I I don't have a crystal ball, uh, Jordan, but a year from now, it might make these companies stock go up. It might make their sales increase. We don't know. I mean, right now, companies are taking a very conservative approach. They don't want to be the first ones in the crosshairs of sending jobs overseas, this and that. And we'll have to see how it develops because you win and lose in this business. And when you're president, you're going to win and lose. He doesn't like losing. So how is he going to respond when he loses on an issue or a battle, and how much credibility is he going to have with the American people? Again, he's got a lot of political capital right now, which is why he's been doing that. I think it only deteriorates from here, and I don't say that as a criticism of him personally. That's just the nature of the office. And so how he chooses to use that and what the effect is after those tweets, um, I, I think will likely decrease over time. How about tax cuts? That's obviously one of his big platforms. Do you think you'll get the kind of tax cuts, both individual and corporate, that he's looking for? And will they have the impact? Will this be another kind of Reagan moment? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll get some of what he wants, but not all of what he wants. I mean, look, you know, this president is a deal maker. And, you know, he he's uh, he's not he's not shied away from that. He cuts deals. So he's going to you know negotiate the best deal he can. There's going to be a lot of Democrats that don't want to vote for tax cuts. And uh, in return, they're going to be asking for you know, what we call sweeteners in the bill. I mean, you know, the the minority leader in the House and the minority leader in the Senate are, you know, likely going to be saying, you know, we, we're not going to produce a lot of votes for this bill, but if we don't have something in it, we won't produce any. And so um, I think there probably will be uh, some sort of tax reform this year. Um, what, what that ends up looking like is anybody's guess. He has an ambitious agenda. He made a lot of promises on the campaign trail, and that was one of them. And so we'll have to see where it falls in the chronology. I, for one, don't think it's something that can happen until after the August recess. I think um, this Congress is going to be um, um, the, the, the amount of work that's on their plate is just going to be substantial. And I don't think they're going to have time to get to it until the August recess. So I wouldn't expect major tax cuts, but I, I think you'll see a tax reform package that, that, that probably, uh, uh, is a middle-class tax cut and, and maybe, uh, eliminate some of the tax loopholes and, um, and, uh, and, 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 and other, you know, tax provisions that, you know, just a, uh, it might exist for one segment of the economy to another. So I think it'll be a mixed bag, but I think it's something that likely comes later this year or earlier ne- or early next year. Now, you're, you've left Capitol Hill and you're now a lobbyist. Supposedly, Correct. Trump is against lobbyists and he's saying that 
Anybody who joins the federal government can't go and join a lobbying firm for five years after they leave the government. Mm-hmm. He's kind of an anti-lobbyist. What's it going to be like for lobbyists? Because there's certainly been a lot of them very excited about the possibilities there. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's going to be... Um I don't do any federal lobbying. That's a different it's a different animal than state lobbying. So I'm not in that space, but I think it's going to be good for lobbyists. I, I you know, um, you're you're I, I look, he's a Republican. He won as a Republican. But Donald Trump's not your traditional Republican. I mean, when you look at a lot of the positions he's had on policy, they've probably been more aligned over history with the Democratic Party than they have the Republican Party. And so a lot of the lobbyists are excited now about the possibility of a president that is willing to work with, negotiate, and cut deals that aren't strictly on an ideological bend or curve. And so um, I, I think that's good. Now, you know, whether or not you know how how the five year cooling off period works. I, I I don't know. It might be an incentive for those to stay in his administration longer and not take a cash payout. But for those that are already in the profession, that already have clients, that are already established as Washington lobbyists, I think this is going to be, um, you know, this is going to be very good for them because all of their clients are likely going to have issues that I'm going to put in the up in the air category because again. We don't, this, this president doesn't have a defining set of ideological principles. And so that gives you a lot of opportunity as a lobbyist, but it also scares the heck out of a lot of your clients because they're walking into what is essentially no man's land. So overall, are you relatively positive and optimistic or are you concerned about things blowing up, like having a trade war or something like that? What is your kind of balance? when you? Yeah, no, I, I am... I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't have great concerns over uh, the presidency of, of Donald Trump. I mean, look, I'm a Republican um, and I want him to succeed. I want him to succeed because I'm an American first, but uh, I have deep concerns. And so um, I'm going to be watching the first year uh, just like everybody else. But I know how hard governing is, and I know that it's a lot different than campaigning. And I tell you, Jordan, the nexus between campaigning and governing has never been farther apart. You know, the qualities that it takes today to make yourself a successful candidate are not the qualities that it takes to make a successful elected official, or in this case, a successful president. And so I worry a little bit about his temperament. I worry a little bit about how he's going to take defeat. Um, But I'm also, uh, uh, on another respect, I am optimistic about a lot of the changes. I'm a big fan of a lot of these cabinet appointees. I do like the way he's going to shake up the uh, White House press briefing. So I think there's going to be some good things that come out of this. But again, I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't have some concerns over how it's going to turn out over the long term. But we'll just buckle our seatbelts and and, uh, and go for the ride and see where it goes. Very good. We are going to buckle our seatbelts. It's going to be quite interesting. Thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Chip Lake. Uh, he is a former congressional chief of staff. Uh, He networks now for Glendale Strategies and Twin Oaks Connect. You can find out more about him at his website, TwinOaksConnect.com. Thanks so much for a very interesting view of what's about to come, Chip. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back after the break with our next guest.
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio. Transforming Higher Education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Hillary Hendershot. Uh, she is a certified financial planner. Uh, her website is, is hillaryhendershot.com, and she also has a podcast called Profit Boss Radio. Welcome to the show, Hillary. Thanks, Jordan. I'm excited to be here. Let's just start with your background a little bit in becoming a financial planner and kind of what led up to uh, becoming a financial planner. You bet. It's really twofold, the um, the story that brought me to where I am today. First of all, I'm the daughter of a one of the first guys to call himself a fiduciary financial planner. So uh, most people don't realize that the financial planning industry is really relatively new. And it started as Wall Street sort of smile and dial, churn them and burn them stockbrokers, uh, kind of wolf of Wall Street kind of stuff. And my father wasn't a stockbroker. He was a life insurance salesman. He came converted his practice to a fee-only practice when I was about three years old. And so it's really all I've ever known. I, When I got out of college, he wanted me to join the business. I wanted to do something sexy. So I didn't come on as a, in, in the financial planning business. Um, instead, I went and cut my teeth at a couple of startups and eventually ended up in his practice in my late 20s um, after, um, after sort of going through the dot-com bust in Silicon Valley. I was a recruiter who was making six, you know, multiple six figures and then nothing. <laughs> and um, so so that's how I got my start in the financial planning world. But 
a few years after I got started, I realized I myself had a financial problem. I was an overspender. I was in chronic debt. I uh, constantly was borrowing money, having financial emergencies. And so I became an expert on behavioral finance and, um, and money psychology and transformed my own financial life. And now I layer all those teachings into what I write about and talk about on my blog and on Profit Bus Radio. So it's, it's really kind of that experiential part and then the formal learning part. And tell us about your clientele. Is it mostly women or? I do work mostly with women. I I help women secure their financial futures, typically women who have lost a spouse or are facing the loss of a spouse through death or illness, uh, divorce, and also answer questions like when and how to claim Social Security, etc. Now you have what you call the money operating systems. What is that and how can people use that to improve their financial condition? The money operating system is a term and a technology that I've trademarked to describe what I discovered and what I isolated as the core of my finance, what was my financial problem and what is kind of the financial limiter for most people is that turns out that money in our life is very um, psychology based. So money is very conceptual. I don't know how much you've talked about this on your show. I'm, I'm sure you've touched on it, but we, we invented money. Human beings invented money. It doesn't actually exist exist in reality, like cash isn't money, credit cards aren't money. It's really hard to actually grapple with. And so as kids, we're confused. And so we anchor on a simplistic superstition that some adult around us says or makes true about money. For example, money doesn't grow on trees or you have to work hard for money or money is the root of all evil, or in my case, there's never enough money. And, uh, and counterintuitively, in order to manifest, there's never enough money, because I strongly believe that was my deeply held belief about money. When money came into my life, the only thing to do was spend it. I had to get it out of my ecosystem so that I could continue to live in a world where there wasn't enough money. And so it was really identifying that as a subconscious belief and then sort of upending it that allowed me to produce a sea change in my own personal financial system. And so I teach about these money operating systems to help people identify what they got imprinted with in their childhood. Uh, So in case, you know, for most people, it's not working out exactly the way they hoped or thought it would. And some people uh, uh, avoid that fate. But for a lot of people, money is a source of stress and anxiety. And so this is a tool to really help people um, transform both their results and their experience of money. So maybe describe specifically, you get a client and you apply the money operating system to them. What does that mean? Is it a budgeting or is it psychological? What is it actually doing for somebody? Sure. So, um, so applying the money operating system technology in a one-on-one fashion, um, it can, can be powerful. Let's take, for example, a client who came to me last year. She is approaching, she's in her 60s, she has a half million dollars saved, but she also um, is, is terribly distressed that she's spending more money than she should be. She feels the anxiety to, to, to save a lot more, much more quickly, but she, in her experience is she can't do it. So we sit down and we look at 
what's going on in her life, what's the underlying belief that's at play. Um, and in this case, hers is money makes me valuable and she's trading money for friendships. So she doesn't have a thriving social life. So she's taking herself out. She's um, paying too much for um, for f- dinners out with friends, for vacations with people she thinks she should be socializing with. And so identifying this and really focusing on building thriving, authentic, vulnerable relationships with people helps her then supplant that need to sort of buy friends, relationships, and social capital. Does that make sense? So a lot of it is the behavioral finance you were talking about and applying that to somebody's situation. It is. I mean, you can example. You you can understand. You it would be intuitive. For example, someone like me in the past with the money operating system, there's never enough money. Would be afraid to invest, um, and so I might be the bridge to help them understand an evidenced way, evidence based way to invest. Um, another another money operating system is money is complicated. These people often have a lot of drama about money in their families. They they maybe don't tell the whole truth or they're angry at people, they're in conflict. And so understanding that that's just a way to relate to money, that it doesn't have to be that way can often help really heal family rifts and drama, especially when there's money involved. I mean, I'm sure you know, the more money in in a family, often the more drama and conflict about it. And so understanding these kinds of, uh, like I, I call them superstitions about money and how they're at play can, can, can heal family relationships. Yeah. So, okay, so you understand that part. What do you think is the biggest predictor of wealth, financial freedom, basically financial success? So there's a gentleman who wrote a book. He interviewed a thousand millionaires, and he said that the number one predictor of financial success is what he calls an internal locus of control, which essentially means that rich people believe they create their life and their results. So they take responsibility for the results that they produce. And when I meet someone and he or she is saying to me, oh, the world did it to me. I never had a chance. It's unfair. Uh, I was a victim. I know that there's psychological game at play here and that they're never going to achieve true financial freedom until they actually decide to locate that responsibility for their results internally versus externally. And how do you do that to somebody, the way they're brought up? I mean, can you turn somebody from kind of victim consciousness to being a master of their own fate? Oh, no. Well, no. No, that has to be done by them. (laughs) I mean, you know, people have to want help. It's a really unique set of circumstances for a person to get great great and valuable advice and implement it in their lives from a coach or a financial advisor because they both they have to recognize that they need help. They have to ask for help and they have to accept the help from that professional or coach or financial advisor that they choose. And so I, I, I don't. I don't go to I don't go to bat with a big axe and a baseball bat and all, all these tools that I'm gonna sort of beat people over the head with until they do the right thing. People have to be in a in a in a situation of wanting to move forward. And you can imagine most people who hire a financial advisor have you know maybe five hundred thousand dollars in investable assets. They've surmounted some of their financial 
psychological struggles. And so, but I know that there's a lot of people out there who want to, but don't have the access to it. So that's really why I created Profit Boss Radio so that I can speak to people in a mass market, sort of free to consume way that also allows me to run a profitable business. And they can get access to a conversation that says, hey, if you're not producing the results that you want, you know, it's possible to actually change. You're not fundamentally broken or missing something. Rich people aren't special. That's what I used to believe. Rich people are special and I'm not. Um, um, but these, this is a skill set that you can learn by listening to people like Jordan Goodman and, and learning. So reading personal finance books, investment books, understanding the body of knowledge that's out there and learning the skills. Very good. So one of the clients you deal with a lot is dealing with divorce. In many cases, the women are not that financially savvy or they've been dependent on the man one way or the other. How do you help them prepare for such a major change in their financial lives? Yeah, it's very, very emotional. So the first thing we do, and I I firmly believe my experience with people is that uh, the best way to cure emotional overwhelm, to begin to cure emotional overwhelm is to really dig into the actual numbers. So it's important to be a private investigator. If you're preparing for a divorce, we're going to look at what are your bills? How much does it cost to stay in the family home? Uh, what are you spending on on lifestyle expenses? What's your income? If you you know if you're working, what's your solo income? What's your husband's income or soon to be ex partner's income? Um, what are the assets? Look at your net worth. And these are numbers. It may seem simple to you, Jordan, but most people don't know what how much money is coming in, how much is going out. And so we really need to get a handle on what it's going to take for you to live. And then you you also want to know um, where the assets in the bank accounts are so that you can take stock because they're going to be split in a way that through the divorce process, they're going to, those assets are going to be split in a way that's dictated by the laws of your state. And so it's important we have a good handle on what's happening. Do you often find that spouses hide assets from another and they need to uh forensic accountants and that kind of thing to uh, figure out what's actually there? Sometimes. I Maybe just the way I sort of run my practice and my life, being very transparent and expecting people to do the best, I don't come across too much of that. Um, uh, I, I, I find a lot of emotional resistance, so a lot of times people are very combative. I have seen, for example, um, because the year that the, the, the divorce takes place is the year that income is logged. So that's, we sort of take a snapshot. And if the husband makes 200 and the wife makes 100, then the wife is going to be entitled to spousal support based on that deferential, which is a $100,000 income difference. And so sometimes, you know, the husband will say, uh, right. And I'm speaking in, in stereotypes. Like sometimes the, the wife makes more than the husband, but sometimes that spouse who earns more will say, you know, I'm just going to work three quarter time or oops, I lost my job or gosh, I just don't find as much consulting gigs this year. And so it's not hiding, but it's also not necessarily doing the noble thing. Kind of, <laughs> what, what do they say? Biting your nose, shooting your nose to spite the face. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Hillary Hendershot. Uh, she is a financial planner based in California. She also has a, a red radio show called the Profit Boss Radio Podcast. You can find out more about her at her website, which is hillaryhendershot.com, spelled H-I-L-A-R-Y-H-E-N-D-E-R-S-H-O-T-T.com, and also Profit Boss 
www.ghostbusinessradio.com. We'll be back after this. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Hillary Hendershot. Uh, she is a financial planner, uh, dealing mostly with women in the uh, California area. She also has a podcast called Profit Boss Radio. Welcome back to the show, Hillary. Thank you so much. So you have what you call the eight principles of financial freedom. We don't have time to go through all of them, but what are some of the most important principles in financial freedom that you have? So, first of all, uh, people... People sort of hand wave the importance of understanding cash flow. No matter how rich or poor or in debt or wealthy you are, you've got to understand how much is coming in and how much is going out. Beyond that, you want to master that cash flow, give each dollar a job as it comes into your ecosystem. Um, I believe firmly in the, in, in the value of automating 
by um, deciding how much my every dollar that comes in, I'm going to send $300 to this account, $1,000 to this savings account. I'm going to spend $2,000 in this next 30-day period. I'm getting very specific. Obviously, your numbers aren't going to match identically. Um, but in that way, you can avoid the problem of of what most people do, which is they spend first and save second. And, you know, I, I recently had David Bach on my show and he mm-hmm. said, people need to tremendously increase their savings rate. I mean, he just said it flat out. And that's the thing people don't want to hear because it involves foregoing pleasures today in order to have peace of mind and, and freedom and dignity tomorrow. Um, and he said, you know, most people need to triple their savings rate. And I thought that's, I've never said it that directly, but that really is it. I mean, most people think they have an earning problem, but what they actually have is a spending problem. So you can surmount a spending problem by deciding beforehand how much of each paycheck you will put in a spending account. I firmly swear by that process. Uh, If you have a process that works, great, more power to you. But if you don't, uh, that's what I recommend. And then and then, you know, I, and then it's important to follow evidence-based practices. I mean, there are, there's a whole cohort of finance experts, so people who've won Nobel Prizes in terms of uh, looking at markets and what's possible to earn from the stock market. Um, and we can really stand on the shoulders of giants at this point. It's very easy to buy very low-cost ETFs and index funds that nine times out of ten have a higher performance internal rate of return than most other investments that smaller investors, ordinary investors can get their hands on. And so really the the smart principles of wealth construction and and retention um, involve very basic principles, but you have to master your psychology, don't you? Now, we've just had a new president sworn in, uh, and how do you think that's going to affect the investing environment? Uh, The market's had a big run since the election. Is that going to continue? Are there landmines ahead? What is your outlook for investing uh, under the Trump presidency. Yeah, you know, I did a whole episode on this, how Trump, how how the presidential election will affect your investments. And the truth is that it turns out the presidency impact doesn't impact either the economy or the stock market very much at all. As you've said, the market voted yes to Trump, meaning that after his election was announced, we saw great surges in all of the major indexes when most pundits were predicting uh, significant cuts, right? So we, we, most, a lot of people were shorting the market on the day the stock market opened and the Trump presidency was official, but that's not what happened. And I think that really speaks to the inability of anyone to predict the stock market. So um, I think that we've seen several years of sideways returns in the stock market, and we're just now beginning to see um, uh, what you might call a bull market. And, you know, I don't know where it will go in the short run, but I do know that year over year, um, for the last 90 years, at least 100 years, at least that the stock market has produced a nine and a half to 10 and a half percent return. And I, I rest my professional credentials on, on that return, on, on, on harnessing that return, harvesting that return for clients. So you think it's better for most people to do index funds instead of picking individual stocks or actively managed funds? I think, in my opinion, the evidence that supports that is is irrefutable at this point, that um, it's very difficult to consistently, reliably beat the market, and most people shouldn't try. Uh, now, how about bonds? Do you think interest rates are going to be rising more, and what role should bonds play in somebody's growth portfolio? 
Sure. So really the only reason to hold bonds is because when you're in retirement, when you're taking money from that portfolio, you can't you can't be in a position where your retirement, where your portfolio loses a ton of value in one year because it's a terrible market and you have to take a lot of money out because you need it for your income to pay your expenses. And so bonds bonds buffer that volatility. So you're not going to get the high highs, but you're also not going to get the low lows. And so um, I believe in keeping a consistent allocation to bonds a lot. There's a lot of common wisdom that people as they age want more and more and more bonds. But the truth is at age 65, if you retire at age 65, you've likely got 30 or more years of retirement to pay for. And you need a strong risk reward ratio. You need those returns of the stock market, which don't come from bonds. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm less of a fan of bonds um, uh, than most advisors, uh, sort of that common wisdom. Um, that said, I, I, most of my clients have between 15 and 35% allocation of bonds in their portfolio. And how about overseas or even emerging markets? I mean, some would say it's going to be a very good time. The economy is growing. Some would say we're going to get into trade wars. So it'll be a terrible time to be overseas. Where do you stand? So if you have a globally diversified portfolio, then you are essentially best poised to take advantage of growth no matter where it exists. For example, we recently saw uh, the the dollar fell against the euro, excuse me, the dollar um, rebounded against the euro and people were were very concerned about this. But what it meant was that the international funds did did fantastic because it was cheaper for uh, Americans to buy European products and those companies had really strong profits. Um, and so, and so I think that these kinds of geopolitical events and trends are really strong evidence for a well-diversified portfolio. No one knows, again, what's going to happen in the short term. I don't attempt to predict short-term events. And I say to my clients, I, I never say anything to you that doesn't come true. You'll never have to track my predictions predictions because I'm not going to make any. I'm simply going to put you in an investment portfolio that has you win no matter what. And so far in my 16 years, I've been able to do that consistently. I've never had a client fail to produce the results we we agreed that there were their goals. So I'm, pr- I'm proud of that. That sounds very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Hillary Hendershaw. She's a financial planner based in uh, Silicon Valley, uh, California. You can find out more about her at her website, which is, again, Hillary, H-I-L-A-R-Y, Hendershot, H-E-N-D-E-R-S-H-O-T-T.com. And she also has a podcast called Profit Boss Radio. Thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Hillary. Thank you. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.